And turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And we'll read all the way. We're breaking a bit of a, a rule. We're going to read the first verse of the next chapter. Don't tell anybody. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. It's in 9 verse 1. This is the word of God. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but... Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as as it is proclaimed, as it is announced and preached, that it would be done with faithfulness, and that you would tune our, our hearts and turn our eyes to Christ, and would your spirit open our ears to what your word says about your son and give us faith. Lord, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So again, we have children here, and as it is, as we normally say here, as you get older, as you spend more time in church, the more and more you're going to understand. You'll understand more things about Jesus from from the Bible and from church when you're 10 than when you were 5. But that doesn't mean that you cannot understand the most important things, the most clear things. And so you'll be able to remember the story. You'll even be able to tell your parents this. 
You'll remember that Jesus went to a town and they took a blind man to, that, uh, to Jesus. And they said, would you please heal him? And then Jesus took that blind man and he took him away from the crowd. And he, he healed this blind man in a very curious way. He put spit on his eyes. And the blind man opened up his eyes and Jesus said, can you see anything? And the blind man said, yes, I can see, but I can't tell the difference between people and trees, except that people are moving around and the trees aren't. And so Jesus touched the man's eyes again and he opened his eyes and he said, now can you see? And the man said, I can see everything clearly. Okay. The next thing Jesus is with his disciples, and he said, who do people say that I am? And, I, and they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. And others say that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, or the Messiah, God's promised anointed king. And then, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he told them, you know, I'm going to have to die. I'm actually going to have to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders of Israel. I'm going to die. And then after three days, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter loved Jesus. And Peter believed that Jesus was the promised king of Israel. The rescuer that God had promised. So, so Peter takes Jesus aside and he corrects Jesus. Jesus, you're not going to die. Don't talk like that, Jesus. Now imagine how silly it is to correct Jesus. And so Jesus corrects Peter in front of all the disciples. He turns to all the disciples and he turns Peter to all the disciples. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he explained no, the Messiah does have to die. And this means that Christians will often have to have good things happen to them and also bad things happen to them before Jesus comes back and brings heaven and earth all together again. We can remember the most important things. Children, you can remember these things. New Christians even if you're not a Christian, you can remember the most important, clear things from this passage. The first is that some people, like that blind man, some people only accept some of what the Bible teaches about Jesus. There's some things that they understand about Jesus, but other things they just, they just reject. They're kind of partly blind. Like that blind man was partly blind after the first healing that Jesus did. The second thing that we all need to remember from this and see very clearly is that Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to suffer before he could take Christians to a new heaven and earth. This needed to happen. The next thing is that before we go to heaven, even if you are a Christian, good things will happen, but also bad things will happen to you in your life. But the last point, which is usually the best at church, one day Jesus will return and there will be no suffering for Jesus and there will be no suffering for everyone who belongs to him. Dear church, this is something, this is a passage that we desperately need because there are so many people around us who, as we look around culture and all the craziness that's happening in the world, 
All the things that are happening, especially in the West, all the nonsense where people are violating God's laws and they're hating God's laws and hating people who love God's laws. There's going to be a lot of people who agree with a lot of Christianity. There's going to be a lot of people who say, we think this is wicked and we can't wait for God to right all this wrong. We can't wait for someone to go and punish all these people who are saying that right is wrong and wrong is right. And yet, when you talk to them about the gospel, about Jesus' death, they're like, ah, yeah, 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 let's get to the important stuff. Or even worse, they say, we don't don't like that part. And we see that part of the Christian life is being prepared to suffer. So much of what we do when we're reading in Scripture and when we gather together in church, God is preparing us to suffer. Not to suffer as his enemies, because if we belong to Christ, we are not God's enemies, we're his children. But being God's children, this means that we will suffer. Oh yes, there's many gifts and blessings that belong to us because of what the Lord Jesus has done And oh, he spares us from so many troubles, doesn't he? But much of the Christian life, much of God's word and our worship together is to prepare Christians to suffer. And being prepared to suffer, we get to see how marvelous the gospel is. So marvelous that we would suffer. We would willingly suffer for that if it meant we had to choose between Christ and suffering for a little while. And no Christ in avoiding suffering, we would say, I would take Christ. Our first point is this. Jesus is the only eternal king of Israel. Jesus is the only eternal king of Israel. We can see this in our, we're low on time here, so I'll just refer back. Verses 22 to 26, we see Jesus with the blind man. This is a very personal healing. The crowd begs Jesus to touch this man. Maybe they did this because they loved this man and they wanted him to be healed. Or perhaps it's because they really wanted to see a miracle. But Jesus takes this man aside and it's a very personal healing. And this reminds us that salvation, Jesus saving us, is although there's many people he saves, he saves a huge church from all nations. Each person is saved one by one, individually. You're not saved by being part of a Christian crowd, or Christian family, or Christian nation. You are saved by faith in Jesus, his personal touch. And so he, it is a very personal, some might say, too personal, where Jesus heals him by putting spit on his eyes. And then after he sees very obscured, very blurry, he heals him again by touching his eyes. This would remind us, this is the only time this happens actually in the Gospels. This man's healing is different than anyone else's. There's no other example in the Bible of someone being partially healed and then being fully healed. Why is this? Well, I think God knows how foolish we are and how foolish our teachers would be in the 2000s. And now we'd say, you know, if for you to be healed, sometimes this needs to happen or this needs to happen. And Jesus heals people in so many different ways in the gospels just to say, I don't need a certain way. I can heal anybody however I want to heal somebody. There's no magic ritual I need to do. I can do whatever I want to do. 
I think that's one of the reasons. I think we also see that everyone's conversion experience is different. Lena remembered the year she was saved. Julie and Shirley remember the year they were saved because it was this year. Thank God there are people here as well who don't remember when they were saved. Don't remember. They never, they never remember a time that they didn't believe the gospel. From when they were very young, they believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's also some people who came to Christ in stages. That doesn't mean you get saved in stages. You're saved, you're saved. It's in an instant. You're either alive or you're dead. But Christ uses things to gradually get your attention. For some of us, it was he gets your attention by showing how guilty you are and how much you want God to rule over the world. And then after that, then the gospel. Then you hear the gospel and you are saved. But we see that all of these examples of healing or of salvation are real salvation. What matters is that in the end, your faith is in the gospel of Jesus. Let's continue reading verse 27 to 30. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter was right. Peter was very right. He said Jesus was the Christ, or if you want to use uh, the Jewish or the Hebrew word, you are the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ of the kingdom of God. He's not just another prophet. He wasn't like John, a prophet, a good prophet, a great prophet. He was the Christ. He was the promised Messiah that God had promised from the very beginning of the Bible. Carl read for, my, for us from Psalm 2, talking about the anointed one, which means Christ. You are the Christ, the anointed one that God spoke of in Psalm 2 that would lay all the nations of the world to waste, that every single king on earth would submit to. Every king who's, who's mocking God, every king who's saying, I will make laws that are against God, I'm going to harm God's people, I'm going to reject God, I'm going to treat myself as God. God promised one day there would be a king who would, who's laughing at all those kings in heaven and one day would lay them to waste. And Peter was right. Jesus is that guy. Jesus isn't just another prophet talking about the Messiah. The king who would reign over all things and would judge the living and the dead. He's not just a prophet talking about that man. He is that man. Peter believed this. That God would send a man to conquer the world for God. Who would end all eneminess. Who would end all rebellion. A man who would satisfy the cries of people who cry out, why do the wicked prosper? How can this rich man get away with oppressing these people? How can that king get away with mocking God? How can these people do these wicked things and get away with it? God promised he would send a king from the line of David, from heaven, to put an end to all of those cries for justice so that everyone crying out for justice would say, 
Yes, justice is satisfied. We can think about this for ourselves as well. Who do you think Jesus is? You're not allowed to have no opinion. Jesus didn't say, do you have an opinion about me? He asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? This is very much like you are a juror. A juror cannot say nothing. A juror cannot say, I have no opinion. God has created the world. You are a person who lives in the creation that God has made. It is plain that there is a creator. It is plain that there is a God. You know he exists. You know how glorious this God is. You know how wise he'd have to be in order to create the world. You know you have an obligation to worship and obey him. And you know that he is a good God who makes good rules. And you also know that you've failed to worship him. And you've failed to obey him. Dear friends, all of us know this is true. And we cannot say, well, you know what? Not enough proof has been given to me that I exist or that God exists or that there is a created world. Dear friends, you cannot say you do not know. But more than that, God has sent his son. You know that you need to be reconciled to God. And you also know that no matter how the scheme could be, how, how, how clever the invention of a religion to say, here's how you can be reconciled to God. Here's what you can do to pay off all your sins, to make yourself worthy of heaven. You know, no matter what the name of that religion, whether it be Buddhism or Islam, you know it wouldn't work. You know that you cannot be saved by things you do. You know that someone else would have to be sent from heaven to save you. You know this is true, and you also know his name now. Not everyone does. But you know that God has sent someone to reconcile you to himself. Will you be reconciled to God? Will you say what is true about Christ? You cannot afford to have no opinion on this man. There's only one person who history records as even claiming to be this kind of a savior. You have now heard this offer. You know there is one eternal king. And you know that this man would have to be sent from heaven. And you have heard that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only eternal king of Israel and all the world. Now, returning to the story, Jesus tells Peter, just like he told this blind man, he says, do not begin to declare this crown. Don't, don't begin to tell people, hey, we should crown Jesus. Let's crown him. He's the Messiah. He's the one from Psalm 2. Let's crown him. Let's crown him. Let's crown him. Jesus forbids Peter, just like he forbade that blind man, the formerly blind man. He forbids him from declaring this crown. And then he proceeds to explain why, which brings us to our second point, And that is this, cross before crown for Christ. Cross before crown for Christ. Your eyes aren't failing you. I am not Caleb Simons. Lots of alliteration there. I can learn from him. As far as we know, he's still in Kenora. Cross before crown for Christ. And we see this in verse 31 to 33. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said it plainly. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is telling Peter, do not try to crown me, Messiah, until I have suffered and died and risen from the dead after three days. Peter was right. He is the Son of Man, the one from the prophets, the one who would bring the sword and the kingdom and the reign of the kingdom of heaven to destroy God's enemies. Yet, what Peter missed is he must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. Why was this necessary? That before Jesus brings this kingdom of heaven, where no unrighteousness, where there's no sin, there's no ungodliness, there's no injustice, there's no wickedness, why is it, why is it necessary that Jesus first, before he brings that, first he must suffer and die and stay dead for three days? Why is that necessary? And the reason is this, because if he were, would have brought that kingdom before he died, that would be a glorious kingdom, but it would be empty. Because there is none of us who, if that's how Jesus came, who would be in that kingdom. If he came to wipe out all the sinners off the earth and then have a wonderful kingdom where only righteousness dwells, no one in this room would be there. All of us would have been destroyed by Jesus because we are guilty. We are sinners. And so Jesus first had to die and be raised from the dead in order to have a kingdom that had citizens in it. All of us have sinned and are children of wrath, the Bible says. In order to be the redeemer of creation as well. Because all of creation was under the curse of human's sin. When God created the world, he put mankind as the head over all creation. And that means it's kind of, it's our house given to us by God. And that because we reign over creation, the curse fell on all of creation. And John 3 reminds us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus came as the redeemer of creation, not the replacer of creation. Jesus' plan was not just to burn the whole thing and start new. He came to be the redeemer. Not to make a new people, but to save old people. Not to make a new creation, but to take the old creation, to die for the sins of people, and then to remake that into a new creation. Jesus says, I am making all things new. And so he had to die for the sin of the world. He had to die for his citizens so that they could enjoy the kingdom of God with him. And so the first time Jesus came, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to be crowned king, but to suffer as an enemy. And he said this plainly. Did you notice that? Very clearly, he says, he says this plainly. He says this to 
to Peter, and he says this to the other disciples. In fact, it's the same idea as when that blind man is healed the second time. He gets to see things not blurry, but he sees them clearly. This is the strong connection between those two passages. And so he rebukes Peter. So Jesus was rebuked privately by Peter because Peter was kind. You know, he didn't want to embarrass Jesus. But Jesus turns this around because he knows Peter is speaking for the disciples and he knows they're going to have to hear this just as much as he and he knows we are going to have to hear this just as much as Peter. And he rebukes him. Peter loved Jesus. Peter believed he was the Christ, the Messiah, the heir of the throne of David, the son of God who would judge the living and the dead. And so Jesus is rebuking Peter, not because Peter doesn't love him and not because he doesn't love Peter. Peter wanted Jesus to reign. And Jesus rebukes Peter with the strongest rebuke you could ever receive. And that rebuke was, get behind me, Satan. You couldn't get a stronger rebuke. Now, this teaches us that there are things that we can be immature on in the faith. God doesn't give us permission to be wrong and, be, and to be immature in our knowledge of Scripture. God doesn't tell us it's okay, but there's a way to be unknowledgeable in certain things and be wrong in certain things and still be a Christian. What Jesus is telling Peter is that if you get this wrong, you're not a Christian. This isn't just immaturity. This is something, this is not just a debate about eschatology. This isn't a debate about how many angels fit on the head of a needle. This is something that is life or death, heaven or hell, Jesus or Satan. So disagreeing with Jesus about the gospel, disagreeing about the, uh, with Jesus about the gospel is not just immature, it's demonic. It's not just sub-Christian or a type of Christianity. It's anti-Christian. And here we see that the gospel tells us the necessity of Jesus' suffering. That we needed Jesus to be punished for us. That we were that guilty. And yet God's love for us was so strong. That even though we were as guilty as Satan, he still loved us and he still died for us. And this was necessary because we were that guilty and that unable to save ourselves. And he suffered the punishment of hell for his dearly beloved church. Dear friends, this is being rejected very popularly and very, very commonly in the evangelical church in North America these days. It is becoming increasingly rare to find a church that calls itself evangelical that will agree with this, led by men like William Young, who wrote The Shack, or Rob Bell, or Peter Enns, or Bruxy Cavey. Very common in our day to deny that Jesus was punished for our sin. Oh, Jesus died. Oh, yes, they would say. But just to be an example of how to love other people, dear friends, dying isn't a way to show people you love them. Not unless you do that to save them. A young man jumping off a cliff to show his girlfriend how much he loves her is a fool. And it is a tragedy. But a young man jumping in front of a bullet for his girlfriend. That is love. 
Dear friends, that is what the cross was. Jesus suffered for our sins. Now, why would people disagree with this? Well, some would disagree with that because it's saying, if you agree with that, you're saying, I'm that guilty. Or you're saying, God isn't that holy. Or, hey, look, I could do this with God's help. I didn't need such a dramatic rescue. Why are you, why are you, why are you calling the fire department here? There's not a huge problem. I just need a little help. But Jesus is very clear that this is the work of Satan. Disagreeing that we were in such dire straits that we needed this. And also disagreeing with God that his love was so great, he would save people like us who were wretches, who were guilty enemies. So great is the love of God that he gave his son to die for our sins. God did not send the Messiah that Peter wanted. And that is good for Peter. He sent one who would suffer for his people before he would be honored as the king of all things. The crown comes after the cross for Christ. That brings us to our third point. And that is the cross before the crown for Christians as well. We get a glimpse and we get an idea of why Peter rebuked Jesus. Why was Peter so opposed to the cross? Let's see this in verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him, uh, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake, and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What we see here is that a suffering Messiah means that his people will suffer because of him. And he says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What he's saying here is that becoming a Christian isn't adding something to your life. It isn't continuing on with life and just adding Jesus to it. What he's saying is you're saying, I forfeit my life. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. I turn my back on my old life. I have a new life and that is Christ. And I now live for the glory of God and the joy of being Christ's. My only comfort What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong to Christ. I'm not my own master. I will use God's things, but I will treat them as God's things. And I'll only use them as God directed them. They all belong to him, including me. Even if I could have more things by disobeying God, more food, more pleasure, more rest, less jail, less torture, less shame. If I could have any of those things, if I have more of any of those things or less suffering by rejecting Christ, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not reject Christ. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And this is Jesus saying, have Christ's relationship with the Father. What was Christ's relationship with the Father? 
give it away by how we call him. It was a father-son relationship, one where they loved each other, where Jesus' greatest treasure was the father's love. And Jesus loved the father. And Jesus obeyed him as a good son obeys a good father. And dear friends, this is the offer of the gospel. It's not merely to have your sins forgiven. It is definitely to have your sins forgiven. But it is also to say, would you like your old life as an enemy of God? Maybe a, maybe a neighbor of God who once in a while likes to get along with him, doesn't want to be his enemy. Or would you like a new life where God now is your father and you are his son or daughter? Now, dear friends, suffering is not inherently holy. Some have taught that suffering is better than not suffering, so that we should intentionally suffer. If there's a choice A or B and one has more suffering, one has more pleasure, we should always take the one that has less pleasure and more suffering. But dear friends, that's not what Jesus says. He says those who suffer for my sake, suffer for me and for the gospel. What he's saying that if the only way to avoid suffering is by denying me, then suffer. Suffering is not holy automatically, but suffering for Christ is holy. And we're to deny ourselves. So even if you really feel like you want something, you say, I'm willing to deny that if it means giving God glory. If my choice is to live as God's son or daughter with suffering, or to live as God's enemy without suffering, I resolve ahead of time that I will live as God's son or daughter. And then he says, those who would try to save their lives will lose it. And those who give up their lives will save their lives. Now this is ultimately true when it comes to martyrdom. And many Christians have paid that price where they were literally given the choice, you will live more than one day if you deny Christ. But if you do not deny Christ, you won't even finish this day. And many people with that gun to their head or the sword to the throat thought about that and saved their lives by denying Christ. But Jesus says they lost their life they lost a life that they would have lost anyways. But those who staring down the barrel of a gun would say, I choose Christ. We shouldn't feel sorry for them. They didn't lose. They gained. But dear friends, it's not only when we're staring death down. It means how we treat every day our life. Because we're always trying to gain more of life to get more joy or more pleasure, more satisfaction out of this life. And he says, if you are willing to give up the gospel in order to gain more money, more health, more fame, more glory, more friends, more rest, he said, that is foolish. If you would try to save your life, you are really losing it. And he says, it's not a fair trade. Jesus will tell us to count the cost when we're considering becoming a Christian. But he's not assuming that as we count the cost and say gains versus losses, pros, cons, assets, liabilities. He's not assuming that it will be a loss. 
He knows it won't be. He knows the surpassing glory of belonging to God as his son or daughter. And he's urging you to think about that. Because he knows that everyone who really does consider the worth of what this world may offer versus what what would belong to you if you belong to God and Christ. He knows that one is an eternal weight of glory. Dear friends, be prepared now. Think about these things. Think about the glory of Christ. Is that worth comparing sex to? Or money? Or pride? Or popularity? Good things. Jesus is better than good things. So much greater. But he also notes something that I think hits very hard. The idea of shame. Did you notice that? In verse 38, there's this theme of shame. Whoever's ashamed of me. For some of us, for most of us, I would guess that the worst kind of suffering possible is not physical. The worst kind of suffering possible would be that of shame. Most of us would rather be punched in the face than to be laughed at by somebody we respect. For the world to look at us and say, what a pity. What a fool. What a shame. For somebody to look at you and say that you, you are dangerous for society. We think what you are teaching is despicable. I can't even. For somebody to do that, to us on social media, for somebody to look at us as, and call us a bigot or to call us closed-minded or any other thing that is being said about Christians, dear friends, the Lord knows because he became a human, he knows how painful that would be. And for that, he gives us a remedy. There is glory for Christians. And the glory is this. For God the Father to point to you and say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And he says, remember that. Think about this. At the end of your life, you will stand before God and either you will be treated by God as you deserve or Christ was treated by God as you deserve on the cross and you will be honored by God with the honor that only Jesus deserves so that what was said to Jesus at his baptism or the transfiguration where God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, of all the things that you have done, your failures, the shameful things that you have done, things that are shameful in God's sight. Think of all those things and yet for God in the end to present you before the whole universe and say, this is my beloved son or daughter. Think of how sweet that will feel and how long that will last. And then weigh that. Would you be willing for a short period of time for people to say, what a shameful thing to believe in Christ. He's not saying that won't hurt. He's not saying that won't be painful. He's saying think of the glory that awaits you that will far outstrip that. And the way that we prepare for that is to think of how glorious God actually is. 
Dwell on that. Meditate on that before the persecution comes, before the suffering comes, before the temptation to steal or to look at pornography or to cheat on your spouse or to lie. Before that comes, think of the glory of God. Dear friends, is the law of God not wonderful? The world is saying it's disgusting, it's terrible, you're a wicked person, you're an enemy of society if you believe the, law, the good law of God. Regarding murder, let's not kill babies. It's not a beautiful law. That's not shameful. That's not harmful to women. That's glorious. That's wonderful. Or God's law regarding sexuality, that there are two genders and they're determined by your chromosomes and that there is two beautiful genders and, and you put a man and a woman together in marriage and that is a beautiful thing and they have children and God blesses that family. Is that a beautiful law or is that shameful? Oh, dear friends, it's beautiful. But Peter would agree with those things, even in his rebuke of Jesus. What he didn't realize in the moment was the gospel and the law were both wonderful. That Christ would die for our sins and that there is no other way. It is important for us to note here is that here we see a rebuke of the prosperity gospel. There is a popular gospel, a false gospel that is rising up and has been rising for, oh, about a hundred years. It's spreading across Canada and United States, in Africa and South America. It is the prosperity gospel that says that if you become a Christian, there will only be good things that happen in this life. And here Jesus identifies it as a satanic gospel. Being promoted by people like Paula White and Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn and Joyce Myers and Bethel Church and Bill Johnson and Stephen Furtick and Leon Fontaine and Springs. This is a false demonic gospel. God does not promise you prosperity in this life. God does not promise that you will not suffer. Dear Christian, he promises that he is with you in this suffering. I know because I know so many of you that you are suffering right now and experiencing different kinds of pain. Maybe it is the shame of your peers for being a Christian and maybe it is the pain of somebody sinning so dreadfully against you or it is the death of a loved one. Dear Christian, this is not evidence that God is not with you. In fact, God holding your faith while you are suffering is his evidence. He's proving that you belong to him because you wouldn't hold your faith through suffering if the Holy Spirit of God wasn't with you proving. This is my son. And this is God shaming Satan when Christians suffer and Christ holds them through suffering, this is putting Satan to shame. And so Christian, Christians who are suffering, take heart. God is with you as you suffer. And our last point, our conclusion, is the happiest one. Verse 1 of chapter 9, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus is not telling Peter, suck it up, buttercup, 
suffering forever and ever and ever, the king you are looking forward to, the heaven and earth with, without wickedness and without injustice, without suffering and pain. You were wrong for thinking about that. Just get over it and change your expectation. That's not what Jesus says to Peter. He says, the kingdom will come. I promise. And he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, if you want to start a really good fight, you will ask people, what does that mean? Does it mean, does it mean the resurrection? Will some people see the resurrection? Is Jesus the first fruit of the kingdom? The answer is yes. Jesus rising from the dead was proof of the kingdom of God. He's the first born from the dead, the first fruits of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe, is it talking about Jesus' ascension? Well, yeah, because at the ascension, the disciples watched him as he took the throne of David, as he raised to heaven, he sits at the right hand of God, the king over his kingdom. Yeah, it's that too. Maybe it's Pentecost, where Jesus visibly anoints the church and says, this is the new temple. Just like he anointed the Old Testament temple in the, uh, of, of Solomon and of, of Moses. Is it that? Yes, also that. Or maybe it's the destruction of Jerusalem and the old temple that happened 40 years after Jesus died. Well, yeah, it could be that as well. Jesus saying, no longer, no longer is, the, is the church bound to that temple or that city. It's I'm blowing out the borders. It's the entire world. Yes. Or perhaps it's the thing that happens very next, which I'm going to say for Jordan next week. It's the transfiguration where Jesus takes a couple of disciples up to a mountain and he is glorified, and his glory is revealed. God's sort of pulling back the curtains, and they get to see the glorious Christ, the lion, rather than the suffering lamb. And Moses and Elijah come, and they talk with Jesus, and they encourage him. And God says in the sight of the disciples, in the hearing of the disciples, this is my son. So we can fight all day. The kingdom of God is here in a true way. Not in its fullness. Glory will come and it does follow suffering. The crown does follow the cross even for Christians. And those who are ashamed of Christ will not be members of it. The kingdom of heaven spreads like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a field with enemies and with weeds. The church being the wheat and the, the weeds being, the, uh, be, being false Christians and there's an enemy attacking that field, we see. And it spreads over the four corners of the world. But for now, to be part of the kingdom of God, we do it with a mixture of suffering. So we get to see the glories of Christ. We get to see him conquering the world with his word. We get to see Dutch people baptized. And Chinese people baptized, and British people baptized, and Filipinos baptized, and even Germans. We get to see the glories of Christ spreading around the world. More and more people singing, crown him with many crowns, mixed with suffering in a world with cancer and sin and false teachers and people who hate the church. 
But Christ will return finally. Peter got that part correct. The love of God in Christ is what the gospel offers us. That he came to conquer the world. He did. But first, he came to save Christians so that we can enjoy a kingdom without sin based on what he has done rather than what we do. Dear friends, do you have a partial sight of the gospel? Are there things in the Bible that you say, yeah, I agree with that, but other things are like, no, no, I can't get there yet. Dear friends, pray that the Lord would fully open your eyes and convert you. To see Christ, yes, as a lion, the king of all things, but also as the lamb who died for the church. If it meant that becoming a Christian meant that you would suffer, would you still do it? Thinking about the glory that awaits those who belong to Christ, the love of God that we have even in the middle of suffering, would you still do it? Dear friends, Christ will come. He will come with power. He will judge the living and the dead. And he will destroy all rebellion. But rejoice, O Christian, because the first time he came, he suffered for your sin. In this world, he said, you will have trouble. But take heart. He has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you do not leave us in confusion. When we see the wickedness of the world around us, Lord, you point out the wickedness of our own hearts. And so that we would see that we wouldn't just need a Savior who will destroy enemies. We would also need a Savior who was destroyed for his enemies. And we rejoice at your great love. That while we were your enemies, enemies of the kingdom of God, that is when you sent your son. And dear Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see the fullness of the gospel? I pray that the children here would see the beauty of Christ. They'd look forward to the reign of Christ when heaven and earth are united, but that they would also be very well aware that Christ had to die for them so they could be citizens of it. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glories of Christ. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.